Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome everyone to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. It's a beautiful fall day here in Wisconsin. My guest is in Belgium, and we're going to have a wonderful conversation today. But before we start, I want to give a shout out to Douglas, who was a donor to the Spiritual Forum podcast ministry, podcast retreat and prayer ministry. And it's just really wonderful to have listeners give to this ministry because it's a message of hope and inspiration and awakening in the world. And I think the world benefits from that. The world benefits from a little bit of hope and a little bit of awakening and a little bit of inspiration. So thank you very much. So far at this point, this is a 100% donation-based podcast. What else do I want to say? Oh, yes. I want to remind you that I will be moving away from the SoundCloud platform. And so... If you are listening to me on SoundCloud, please start moving over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, other podcast apps, because you're not going to find me on SoundCloud within a few weeks. And there's lots of reasons for that. Don't need to go into it, but it's going to be a better podcast overall. So I think that's all I need to say. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let me introduce my guest, who is Kate McNally. She grew up in a mainstream Christian faith where she could not find the connection to the divine that all of us seek. She turned to psychology and science and to the pursuit of success, and that all worked for a while, providing a measure of comfort but not fulfillment, feeding the ego but not the spirit. I think we can all identify with that. Then, at a low point and broken by the drive for success, Kate began a spiritual journey that brought her to the Quakers. There she found a spiritual community and a stripped-down, simple way of following the basic commandment, love one another. In her book, Quaker Quicks, A Simple Faith in a Complicated World, Kate explores the faith of Jesus rather than the faith about Jesus and shares with us the connection to God, self, and others that have brought her to her spiritual community. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's so good to have you. Yeah, I'm glad you're here, too. I really love stories about people who find their home, find their spiritual place, and have had the journey through looking at how they were raised and then saying, this is not for me. It doesn't always have to be a judgment on them, but this is not for me. And then finding what it is that fills your spirit and lights your life. And I think that's what your journey's been about. So before we get going any further, could you tell us a little bit about your journey and your spiritual journey and how you got to writing your book today? I'd be happy to. I grew up, as my name might imply, in the Irish Catholic, Roman Catholic Church and went to Catholic schools for 12 years. So I think I had a pretty good grounding in mainstream Christianity. I, and what I found was a, was a religion that told me what I believed, and it told me that I was born imperfect, that I was created imperfect, and that, that the sin of people who historically didn't exist was on my soul, and I could never, ever make that up. 
and that I had to spend my life trying to be perfect and trying to please a God who created me this way, imperfect, and yet sent God's own son to, to wipe this sin away, the sin that I didn't commit. And yet somehow the ledger still wasn't balanced. I, I couldn't like, what kind of God is this? Who is this? I just didn't, I couldn't connect to this idea of a, of a vengeful, jealous God and a God who would punish people for things they didn't do. I, I also found in my religion that I grew up, we learned there's a creed that we would recite often, told us what we believed. And in there, here's what it said about the life of Jesus. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died and was buried. All the rest is about the structure of the church and the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins and what I have to do to get my sins forgiven. It seems to me that between born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate is the whole story. That's where we find the story of this man whose life is still inspiring us today. And I couldn't find a lot of that in the faith I grew up in. And now, let me just say, there are many, many people who find great comfort in this faith. My parents did. My mother was a devout Catholic to the end of her days. I could never settle into it the way she did. I couldn't ever find what she found. So I started looking. When I was at university, I started looking around at different faiths because I always had this idea of something that I call God, but it was more a sense of justice or goodness or love. And I looked for a faith, a religion that had that same idea of God, and I couldn't find one. I didn't look at Quakers. There were no Quakers around where I was at university. I couldn't find one. So I just gave it up and went on trying to be the best person I could and trying to understand what life was about and how to make my way in the world. And so what I did was I turned to psychology as, as a way to find this guidance. And that helped for a while. I was a professor of psychology for a while. I was in, worked in the corporate world as a management consultant, giving people advice about how to run their lives and their companies. And then Finally, I just left that all. My husband and I, we left our, our, our corporate careers, moved to Europe, and started teaching English as a second language to Belgians. And we were kind of happy. But one day, we were in England, and I wandered into a Quaker house, a Quaker meeting house on the Sunday morning. And I thought, you know, I've always been sort of curious about Quakers. And I wondered what it would be like to be in a Quaker meeting. And so I thought, here's my chance. And I went in, let me stop there and just as a little aside, say that this was a, a, a kind of Quakerism that we call unprogrammed. And Quaker worship in the unprogrammed tradition consists of sitting in silence and waiting for God to come to us and to, to connect to us. So I went in this meeting and I sat there and I felt like, the silence was like nothing I'd ever heard before. It was, a, it was a solid thing. I felt like I could fall into it and it would hold me up. And I felt like I had come home. This is what I had been looking for, is this connection to something bigger than me. And I don't even have, I don't care how you describe it because I could feel it in my heart. And that's, I felt like I was home. 
And shortly after that, my husband and I started attending Quaker meetings here in Brussels and joined Quakers. And that's how I got to be a Quaker. That's about 10 years ago. In order to, because I'm never going to be a Quaker for 50 years, like some I know, I enrolled in a course in, in the UK called Equipping for Ministry, which is almost like a, maybe a master's degree in Quakerism. It, it, it's a two-year pro course, and it teaches us all about Quakers and the history and what it means, and, and it prepares you for your ministry. And in Quaker terms, your ministry is the work that you do in the world, and it's described as where your great joy meets the, the world's needs. And for me, that then, what I found in that course was a ministry of writing that I could write. And I began to write for a Quaker magazine. And a friend of mine said, why don't you write one of these Quaker Quicks books? They're short, they're 20,000 words, and you know, you could do that. And, and I did. And so therefore, we now have a simple faith in a complicated world. Yeah, I think I, I really thought your book was great. It was nice and succinct. And it was a great journey. And I've always been very curious about the Quakers. Very curious. I've never been to a Quaker meeting. I think a lot of Quaker beliefs, which I'd like to go into, but I think they intersect unity, which is one of my ordinations, in, in a lot of ways. And the, the U unity founders would teach people to find God in the silence. Now, our church experience wasn't the silence like the Quakers is, but that's the place to really have that full experience. So I, I can identify with your journey. I can definitely identify also with this idea that so many people are raised with, you know, there's something wrong with you. You're flawed. You're bad. You're wrong. You're not good enough. And it, it just doesn't make any sense that we would have a God that is underneath all of creation and that we would say God is love, it doesn't make any sense that, that the message should be you're bad, you're wrong, you're flawed. So I too searched in my 20s and 30s and finally found what I was looking for. I want to just point out a few things that I just thought were so wonderful. You said that I think you said the silence was something you could fall into it and it would hold you. Is that what you said? I thought that was so beautiful. What a beautiful way to define the experience of the divine, that I could fall into it and it would hold me. And then the other thing you said I thought was so wonderful about the work in your life, if I wrote this down correctly, is that that's where your joy meets the world's needs and that that's something that you're encouraged to do as a Quaker, because I think so many people struggle. So many people struggle with what am I here for? What am I? Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What's my work? And if we just paused and look at where does your joy meet the needs of the world? I mean, it's, it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that hard to look at it that way, but I just love that's just a beautiful, beautiful way of putting it. So before we go on any further, can you just describe generally the Quaker service and the beliefs or the tenets that Quakers hold? Well, first of all, I, I need to say, always when we speak of Quakers, we have to qualify this and say, I don't speak for all Quakers. 
I don't even speak for all unprogrammed Quakers, but there are many different, there are programmed Quakers, there are evangelical Quakers, there are conservative Quakers. My, my tradition is the unprogrammed, and that is primarily what we have in, in, in Britain and Europe. There are many unprogrammed Quakers also in the U.S. The most Quakers in the world are in Kenya, in Africa, and they are evangelical. So it's, there's lots of different ways that Quakers, Quakerism shows itself. But at its, the, and in the unprogrammed tradition, we have no dogma. There is, we are not required to believe anything. But what unifies us, if anything does, as Quakers, is this idea that two, there are two ideas. And it, it, we often challenge each other to explain Quakerism without using negatives. We don't have dogma. We don't have clergy. We don't. But what we do have, <laughs> you know, what we do have is a belief that every human being can have a direct, unmediated experience of the divine. Without, we don't need clergy for that. We can have that direct experience ourselves. Now, some kinds of Quakers do have clergy. They have pastors. My kind doesn't. So we have directly have this direct connection with God, the divine that I call God. And the other thing is that every person, every creature has a bit of God in them. We call it that of God. And from that, all of the things that Quakers are known for follow. For example, if we believe that there is that of God in every human, we're pacifists. We don't kill each other, you know. If we believe that there is that of God in every human, we try to be truthful and honest with each other. Um, Quakers were the first business people to put a fixed price on things in their shops instead of making people negotiate so that the price you paid was the price somebody else paid, and it didn't depend on your skill in negotiation. So Quakers believe that everyone's equal. If there's that of God in all of us, we're all equal. And we try, again, we're humans, we're not perfect. We try to treat everyone the same. If we believe that if there's that of God in all of us, then the world doesn't belong to me or to you or even to this generation, that we are stewards and we have to care for the world so that it will be here for future generations. So we have what we call testimonies, and it's the way that we show these beliefs in our lives. So first, we're pacifists. So peace is our first testimony, and probably the one that is the oldest and the one that unifies the most Quakers. Equality is another one. Quakers very early on gave women equality in the church. They were able to minister in, in meeting and things, had roles in the church. I always have to think for a minute, Spice. Simplicity. Uh, the world's resources are not mine. We have to keep them for other people and truth or integrity. And because we're Quakers and everybody's a little bit different, other groups have other, other there are other testimonies that different people use. Community stewardship are often mentioned, but the four core ones are those. And, and when you say testimony, what does that mean? Testimony is it's like values or? Yeah, it's a value. It's more than a value because it's a value that we then put into action in our lives. It's a value that guides. Now, I know in theory, all of our lives are guided by values. But for Quakers, the testimonies are, we are challenged to let our lives speak. And when our lives speak, these are some of the things that they should say is peace, equality, simplicity, uh, truth, and among other things. But yeah. I love that. Let our lives speak. It makes so much sense. I, you know, when you describe this, it sounds to me like people would be flocking 
to a Quaker meeting just sounds like what a lot of people would say they're about, not necessarily how they demonstrate what they're about, mm-hmm. but, but peace, equality, simplicity, and truth. How can you not be for all that? I think the challenge is those things are challenging to live. Absolutely. <laughs> so you can't just, yeah, you can't just talk about it and then go live differently. Is there some sort of accountability that goes on? I, so I think that I see with a lot of religious people that they speak a certain way and they act a different way. And this could be religious people around church, or it also could be religious people around other just thought systems, that their actions and their words, their thoughts and their actions and their words are not aligned. But it sounds like it's really important to you all. It is. And let me, again, let me start by saying that Quakers are human. We, we have our values. We have our goals and our aspirations and our objectives. We often fall short. But the, what we do have is we do have accountability systems. If, for example, if I believe that I am called to go and work in a refugee camp and leave my family and go and do that, what I normally would do is I would go to my meeting and say, this is what I believe I'm called to do, or whatever I'm called to do that might mean a major change in my life or the life of the people around me. I would go to my meeting and say, this is what I'm called to do. And we would have what's called a meeting for clearness, where we would get clear on whether or not this is what I'm called to do. We would have supporting people who would make sure that we had the support we needed to do this. If the meeting discerned that this is a real calling and not just me trying to get out of paying my bills or something. So, so we do have accountability issues, not issues, we do have accountability systems. We don't always use them, but we do have them. One thing that, that we have that I really love is upholding elders. Uh, for example, I was recently asked to do a project that was very emotionally difficult for me. Um, it involved some things that were triggering for me and things that were potentially difficult. And I asked to have an upholding elder. This is a person I can talk to. I can call when I need to shed what's happening during the day in the project if something triggers me. This is somebody who knows me well and knows what my, what my history is and what might trigger me. And this is someone who who will, during the day, if they know that I'm, if I know that I'm having particularly difficult time of day, a meeting or something, I will tell them. And they will, during that time, uphold me, which means just basically pray for me during that time. And it's something that I find really, really supportive and very, very useful. So as Quakers, we do have, we do have accountability systems. We also, because we have this direct connection with the divine, we need a way to make sure that what we think we're hearing is not ourselves, that it's coming through us and not from us. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I think it's so important. I think many, many people, the one thing that they have the most trouble with is discernment. Discerning, is this the voice of my ego or is this the voice of spirit? Is this my calling or is this something that hmm, my ego is trying to get me into or out of, as you mentioned? And I, I think that... Normally, I would say go within and find the, the voice of God within you, and that's the one to listen to. But I think that muscle isn't really strong in a lot of people. So what you're talking about is, I think, like standing up before people 
and saying, this is my calling. And what happens there? Do they ask questions? Do they probe? Do they pray? How do they help discern whether this is an actual calling or something that your ego is trying to get you into? Well, it depends. I think it depends on what, what the issue is that you take to them. I can give an example. It's a little bit different from that one. It's, I, as I mentioned, I found in this course, I found a ministry of writing. And I often write things for a Quaker magazine in Britain. And before I do, before I send something off, uh, there are two or three people who know me well and who've been through this course with me and know some of my stuff. And I send it to them and they will help me find, they will help me understand, or they will tell me if they think this is coming from me and not through me. And sometimes that's okay too. I can still send it off, but I need to know if it's ministry mm -hmm. or Kate, you know? And so, so I have people who are the conscience of my ministry. And I think most Quakers do something similar, whether they use the formal structures of meeting for clearness and discernment and worship sharing, or whether they just have people who are their, their conscience maybe a, an accountability group. Yeah, I want to move into the religion of Jesus versus about. But before I do that, I want to ask you about no clergy and how that works. And I think it's really interesting to me. Now, I've been clergy. I founded a church. I led a church. I love the work. I love creating the service. I love being there for people. We also, in unity, don't require anyone to have beliefs. We, <laughs> we couldn't do that if we wanted to. People are free to believe what they want. But then we also teach a certain set of tenets or a certain set of principles. And it's like, this is the ideal and what we're, what we're trying to, to be. And the same thing, the divine is within and, and we all have this divine spark and we, we pray and we meditate and we put action to our words. But I'm really intrigued because I've been intrigued in the last few years about our ego's dependence on authority figures and how what happens is we end up projecting onto these authority figures, like we're getting something from them or they are the ideal person. And as a minister, I found that also very problematic. It's deflecting doing the work. So I'm very intrigued by a community that really has no pastor. But I'm guessing you have some kind of leadership to operate things. I don't know. Can you just speak to that a little bit before we get into Jesus' teachings? Yeah. yeah. Again, I'm going to say that there are Quakers who have pastors. Yeah, I there are Quakers yeah. who have a, a traditional structure. In the unprogrammed structure, we don't have pastors. We have elders. We have the administrative work of the, the, the congregation, if you will, is called a meeting. And the administrative work of the meeting is done by the clerks. And they, there may be one clerk, there may be two clerks, there may be a group of people who take turns being clerks. But there are clerks who do the administrative work of the meeting, who run the meetings for business. And it's very different than a normal business meeting. Quakers don't vote, for example. There's, there's a, a whole different whole way that we do things. But so we have, we have roles, and those roles traditionally, typically, are held for three years for one triennium. And at the end of that triennium, they might be renewed for a second one, and then the person goes away and somebody else takes the role. So again, it's this thing of equality, and it's the thing that, that we all have gifts. There are things we're better at than others, and some people are better at being the clerk or the treasurer or the elder or the, over, the pastoral care. We have pastoral care people. They used to be called overseers, so I started to say that, but we don't use that word anymore because it has other connotations. 
But so the pastoral care people or the people have gifts for that. But the roles in theory are shared among everyone. And there are people, for example, who would never, ever be treasurer. No, thanks. People (laughs) who would not want to be the clerk. But in general, that's how it works. There are specific roles that are shared. I'm so fascinated by this because I, I think this is a model for that could be expanded. I mean, it's so it's for your particular unprogrammed Quaker meeting place, but I can see towns working this way and cities working this way. And I, 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 why not? I mean, a, a shared leadership that's temporary and that we're not projecting anything onto some higher being, a human being, I mean, and we're all our own authority and we see the divine in each other. I, I just think this is fascinating because I think it's a blueprint for what's possible for humanity. That's just my thought. Hmm. In, in politics, it would look like term limits. And I think the people who have to vote would have to vote it in are the people who would lose their power and would do well, it. Yeah, but, it would look like yeah, term limits. Yeah. It would also look like a rotation yeah. and it would look like a, a system where people are listened to. And uh, anyway, well, that's an aside, but I'm very intrigued by this. I'm very intrigued by how humanity gives up their own inner divine authority to these external authority figures. And it sounds like what's in the design of at least your Quaker, I don't want to say denomination, but your group. Tradition. Tradition. Tradition is good. The unprogrammed. That you're a blueprint for what's possible for humanity. Because I think the more and more we realize our divine nature, the higher we raise in consciousness, the more we are manifesting the divine through us, that we don't need so much external leadership that we know what is the right thing to do. You know what is the right thing to do. But you also have the system where others can hold you accountable and even be a discerner of, is this the right move for me or not? It's just really interesting to me. If I could just maybe quickly talk about how business is done in a, we call it a meeting for business, but it's actually a meeting for worship with a concern for business. And it, it begins by what we call centering down. And it's sort of like in meditation when you begin the meditation, although it's, let me just say Quaker worship is not meditation, but it, we begin by centering down, by getting quiet, opening our hearts to the divine. And then whatever is before the meeting is brought up and people will wait to be moved to speak. And it's very different than any, I spent my life in the corporate world and it's very different from that because if you've said what I was, what I was moved to say, there's no need for me to say it. It's been said, it's been put into the silence. We all take it back and we absorb that and we wait to see what else might come. And in the end, the, the, the role of the clerk, and this is very difficult to do, if the role of the clerk is to discern when the beating is in unity around an issue and then they write a minute. The minute is approved in the meetings. There's no surprises later. This is what we said. This is what we agreed. And then the next item comes up. So they're very different than most business meetings. Um, and let me say, they don't always go that way because, you know, we're people. But, but that's the idea. And when they go off track, we are reminded that this is a meeting for worship. And we need to get back into worship mode and, and leave our opinions aside. And uh, yeah, it's a very so, so when people get up and speak, are they getting up and mm-hmm. speaking what came to them in the quiet? 
Normally. Normally. Hopefully. We hope they are. Okay. Yeah. But every once in a while, somebody might say somebody needs to clean the library or the bathroom or something like that. Does that come up to you? Well, well, norm- normally it's the, it is it is things you know. It's like I I sometimes have trouble believing that God cares what color the curtains are, but you know we we might we might have issues with that. But God's like blue, 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 blue. No, that's, that's my mom's so color. That's my mom's. Oh no, green. You know? yeah. I heard green. That's yeah. so funny. All right. So uh, some things don't really need that method, but the the things that are spiritual do need that methods. Yeah. Very very interesting. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the religion of Jesus versus the religion about Jesus. And then I'm going to give you the opportunity to pull out excerpts from the book, your book, if you want to do that. For me, it comes down to this thing of, you know, between born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate is the story. That's the religion of Jesus. I think of Jesus a lot, the, the human being, not the Christ. I mean, Jesus, the man, Christ was a a title to indicate he was the Messiah that I don't think he ever claimed. And it certainly was not his last name, which I keep telling my brother. It's not, not his last name. <laughs> and, but I think we're, we're told he was a carpenter. And I wonder sometimes about the human being, the Jesus that, that was a carpenter. And, you know, I wonder like, how did he part his hair? And what did he call his mom? And did he make a piece of furniture that he was really proud of. And what did he say when he smashed his thumb with a hammer? And, you know, could he swim? All these things we don't know about him. And yet we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. And I think for me, the faith of Jesus is the one that tells me that we need to love each other. And it's that simple and that difficult, that, that loving each other is what it's about. Whereas the faith about Jesus is the one that tells me I have to give money to a church. And, and you know, I, I went into um, a church in Bruges recently. It's a beautiful church. And it has a statue that we've all seen. It's, you know, the sacred heart, Jesus standing with his exposed heart. And I thought if the real historic, and he's blonde, of course, if the historic <laughs> Jesus came in here, would he look at that and say, hey, dude, look, it's me and take a selfie? And, no. I think he would probably turn over the table that was taking contributions for the poor and complain about the golden chalices and say, you know, this isn't what it's about. It's about how can we, how can we love each other? I, I, as, as a Catholic, I was not encouraged to read the Bible. It was interpreted for me. So I can't claim to be a student of the Bible, but I'm pretty sure Jesus never said, pick up your cross and worship me. I think what he said was, mm-hmm. follow me. He said, follow me over and over again. He said, I, I used to say that when I had a church. He said, follow me so many times. I can't remember how many times, but that to me also is what his life was about. Watch me, follow yes. me. Do this, do what I do. Feed the hungry, tend the sick, welcome the stranger, you know? And yet I, I was in a, a church in Italy recently. It was a beautiful church. And there was a sign outside that said, come and see our treasury. It's, it's richer than the Queen of England. And I thought, shame on you. And then I stepped over homeless people to go into the church. And there was this big thing that said, give money here for the poor. I'm going, well, wait a they're minute. right outside. You know, <laughs> in your treasury. Yeah, they're right outside. There's a bishop's mitre encrusted with precious stones. How many poor people could you feed with that? And that for me is the, the religion about Jesus. 
that that uses the idea of Jesus to tell me that my loving somebody else or that I'm not enough and that that the only way that I can that 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 my life this life isn't what counts as the next one and the keys to the next one are held by somebody in the pulpit and I can only get there if I get them whatever they want. and yet they seem to have already gotten all the you know the benefits so that for me is the religion about Jesus whereas for me the religion of Jesus is the one that says you know who needs my help what what do I have that I can share and how can I show this person that I what do they need and and it's the one that 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 goes to the person sitting outside the supermarket begging for food and sits down next to him and says tell me your name what do you need? And goes in and buys a bag of groceries for him. That's, for me, the faith of Jesus. I think that Jesus also saw the divine spark in everyone. So it was like he saw the, the divine spark in, it doesn't matter if you were poor, if you were sick, if you were leper, if you were rich, if you were female, if you were male, if you were a child, that he saw the spark of divinity in everyone. That's how I look at it. But I love how you like to humanize him and ask questions about him. The idea that born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, that the beliefs that many people proclaim completely ignore what's in between that. And they're looking at the like the last six hours of his life. It's interesting to think about, do I want when my time is to leave this planet and my loved ones gather and talk about me and my life, do I want them to be talking about the last six hours of my life? Or do I want them to reflect on what all of Carol was? You know, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I haven't thought of it that way, but that's exactly it. If you think about, we're told that, that it's the resurrection that's the most important, and yet the symbol of Christianity is the cross. It's not the stone that was rolled away, or it's not anything that symbolizes resurrection. Yeah. It's the symbol of that horrible political death. You know, it's like it's like wearing a little electric chair around your neck. I've you know, always felt the same way. <laughs> However, you died, wear that around. Unity is very much yeah. the same way. Some churches may have a cross, but most don't, and certainly not a crucifix, because that's not the point. The, po the point is, well, for the point is for me, the life. The point is for others, the resurrection. But for some reason, we're looking at the death and the suffering. And, it, you know, what, what better way to look at the life of this person that, as you said, has had such a significant impact on all of history and today that we're still talking about him anyway. And a lot of people are, have different views of who he was, but he was significant. And that all we're talking about is, is that suffering. And to just imagine what he was like as a boy or as a teenager. Did he have a crush on that girl over there? Did he even like being a carpenter? Yeah. yeah. I mean, how many yeah, of us yeah. get stuck in Did feelings we don't like? Yeah. Did he have a choice? Right. Yeah. What was his mom like, really? Yeah. Really? Uh, really? Did he have an accent? What did it say about him? You know? Yeah. It's like, yeah. What were his little quirks? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What, what was the little sign he made that his friends knew meant back off? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Did he tell jokes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did he ever eat How bacon? How did he play? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go off on another tangent I'm, with that. I think that yeah, yeah, I think I Jesus think so. didn't eat bacon. Um, all right, so where would you like to go now? Would you like, do you want to read some parts of your book? I think there's another thing in my book that is, is probably a little bit different. And that is, it's about our strengths and our weaknesses. Yeah, let's talk about that. Because I think probably for me, the overarching theme in my book is that we become spiritually whole when we are connected to something bigger than us that I call God, the spirit, the light, whatever, whatever it feels like to you. When we're connected to that, to ourselves and to other people, then we're spiritually whole. And I think for me, that's the, the thing that has made the biggest difference in my life is finding this connection to God and then understanding who I am and who I'm not and who I'm supposed to be and who I don't have to be. And then understanding that I'm not perfect and I'm not supposed to be perfect, but I'm perfectly suited to the work I'm called to do. Understanding that how my strengths and my weaknesses equip me for that work understanding how my strengths and weaknesses, this is part of understanding myself connecting to me, understanding how my strengths and weaknesses connect to each other. That's what I'd like to read about. But also understanding that my imperfection is really an important thing that, that pushes me to form community with other people. Because the word perfect, the root of the word perfect is Latin, it's perficere, which doesn't mean flawless. It means complete. And when I'm imperfect, I'm incomplete. And my imperfections then push me to form community with other people whose imperfections are so complementary to mine, if you will. So together we are complete. Together we're perfect. Interesting. So our incompletions yeah. drive us to come together to form a completion. I think so. Yeah. I, think, I think that's, I think it's an important part of forming community. I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think that puts a different light on the scripture, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Because a lot of people are like, how can I be perfect? God is perfect. How can I be perfect? And, and then there's others that would say you are perfect in your imperfection. <laughs> so I love the idea that the word is actually completion or that's what it means. See, I think trying to be perfect doesn't really get us closer to God. I think that's where we're trying to be God. And it doesn't work for us because that's not who we are. It's not how we're yeah. made. It's an ego trap. I think it's an ego trap. There's a lot of ego traps that sound spiritual, but taking that path takes you away rather than toward. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Did you find your passage? Yeah, I do. Here's, here, this is about strengths and weaknesses. So it's how we get to be our best selves. Being our best selves requires we know and acknowledge our strengths and weaknesses. Further, that we explore the ways in which they relate to each other in order to stay as much as possible in the realm of our strengths. This relationship is not always obvious. However, sometimes it becomes clear with a little reflection. For example, I can be confident and I could be organized and I can be persistent. I can also be arrogant, controlling, and stubborn. Exploring the relationships between our strengths and weaknesses shows us that they are often closely related. Confidence and arrogance, for example, are two sides of the same coin. So are stubbornness and persistence. Being organized and being controlling 
being discerning and being judgmental and so on. Often we try to get rid of our weaknesses as if they were defects, quality control errors or black spots mm -hmm. on our souls. I know. In fact, we can't do that without getting rid of our strengths as well. They are inextricably linked. We are the way we are made, and granting the gift of persistence also adds the problem of stubbornness. I believe it's important to realize that our weaknesses are also often our strengths. We need them to do the work we are called to do. We have persistence for a reason, and our challenge is to keep it from hardening into stubbornness. God calls us all with all our stuff. It's up to us to understand how to make that stuff useful. Therein lies our challenge as human beings, to keep our strengths from becoming weaknesses in our everyday lives, where these weaknesses can threaten the links that bind our communities and our relationships with other people. Because our strengths are also our weaknesses, when we work to eliminate them, we risk eliminating the strength. Instead of trying to eliminate one side of the gift, we might look instead for the catalyst that turns a strength into a weakness, the secret ingredient that can turn us from the person we hope or want to be to the one that we fear we are. And I believe that these strengths and weaknesses are related through one thing, fear. Most often, the fear uh -huh. of losing something we have or not getting something we want. When I'm feeling confident and this kind of fear enters the equation, the confidence can slip over into arrogance. Conscientiousness can slip over into alcoholism. Persistence can become stubbornness, etc. We're called into ministry in our work in the world just as we are with all our stuff. An important part of preparing ourselves for ministry or any important work is to understand our strengths and our weaknesses and how they are related. Because that tells us how to control the, or minimize the weaknesses to bring out our strengths when we need them. It's the fear that we need to learn to control. Wow. That's really, really helpful, I think, for a lot of people as a start to how to look at themselves. Because I, I think the journeys, the spiritual journey is vast and it's long and it's arduous and it's many, many turns. But to, to start by looking at your strengths and weaknesses and looking at how your strengths can become a weakness and how your weaknesses also propel you to become stronger, I think that's really interesting because you're asking people, you're asking people to consider taking an inventory. Who are you? What gifts do you have? How are you using them? And where are you on the scale of strength to weakness of that particular attribute? Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So what was your own assessment of your strengths? Were those the, well, the ones that you mentioned? Some of them were there, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it depends. It depends. I mean, I, I have them both. And one day I can be confident and uh, organized and conscientious. And another day I can be arrogant and stubborn and controlling. And a lot of it depends, not so much maybe on what's going outside, but what I have going on inside. Sure. And if... Yeah, because we think we tend to think of people having certain attributes. They're strong at this and they're weak at that. Even in an interview, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to say, hey, let me tell you, <laughs> my strength can be a weakness. <laughs> are you going to hire me now? <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that part of your book. I, I think that's very, very useful for people in addition to everything else we talked about today. And as I mentioned before we started, I do want to give you the last word. I want to be able to, whatever we didn't cover, I want to be able to offer you some time to say whatever you want to say that I might not have prompted you to say. 
I, I just think, I think the thing that for me that came to me as I was writing the book is the importance of these connections with, with the divine, with myself and with other people. And then in the book, we explore how the connection with the divine works for me because it's, it's my experience, how my connection with myself came about. And we talk a little bit about strengths and weaknesses, talk a little bit about fear and how to manage that. And then how we can connect to other people and what that means. And so that's probably the major theme of the book. But there's also this thing about perfection and that perfection is way overrated. And it's not, I think it's not for us, perfection. It's not for us as humans. Before we close, I know you're not an evangelical Quaker, but is there an interest or desire in having more people come to your Quaker community? Or is that something that you just allow the divine to work through people and those who are called will come and it's all okay if there's one person there or 10 people there or 150 people there? There's a lot of discussion about that because it's not as unprogrammed Quakers, we, we don't proselytize, we don't, we do outreach. And there's lots and lots of disagreement about what constitutes outreach and where you've gone over the line to what to one person or another person might be too much advertising or too much. But there's also the fact that the numbers of unprogrammed Quakers are dwindling, as you can imagine. And so there's a lot of discussion about how to do outreach, how to just how to get our message out. And part of it is through this series of Quaker Quicks books. They're all meant to be read in a couple of hours. So somebody said, on the train between London and Glasgow, yes, you can read them all. That's refreshing. Um, for someone like me, I have to read yeah. a lot of books for my podcast job. It's nice to have one that's yeah. succinct, <laughs> one that Short, I can finish yeah, in a yeah. few hours. The testimonies, as you mentioned, what you all stand for, it seems to be what a lot of young people would also stand for. They just haven't made the connection, the spiritual connection. Perhaps they've rejected it. But peace and simplicity and um, truth. I'm trying to read the second one. Equality. <laughs> Those are all things Equality. that millennials are all about. You would think that they'd be coming in yeah. in troves. Yeah, I think most unprogrammed Quakers in Europe come to Quakers as I did, which is as an adult after searching for a long time. Mm -hmm. And because we're not well known and we're not on every street corner, although there was a time when 60% of British people were Quakers, it's no longer the case. We're not on every street corner. It's not always so easy to find us. But maybe there is one other thing I'd like to add is that a lot of people, I think I grew up in the U.S., obviously, you can tell. And I think you can't grow up in the U.S. without knowing the Quakers used to exist because of Pennsylvania. Right. But, but knowing the, that we're still around. <laughs> exactly, Quaker Oats. That's not us. That's not us. Yeah. We don't do oats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we say, we don't do oats and we don't do oaths. So oh, we, uh, we uh, okay. yeah. yeah. But we, but I think a lot of people do know about the work of Quakers, even if we don't know about Quakers. For example, Quakers founded Greenpeace. Quakers founded Oxfam, which is a, a big charity here in Europe. There's a lot of Quaker peace work. Quakers are represented at the UN. Quakers are represented at the Council of Europe at both UNs in Geneva and New York. Quakers received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1947 for their work after the war with refugees. And this has just become public knowledge because people who 
have the Nobel Peace Prize get to nominate for the next one. It was Quakers who nominated Martin Luther King for the Peace Prize. Oh, nice. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Nice. That's something to be proud of. Quakers. Yeah, exactly. There's a program I don't know if you know about called Kinder Transport, World War II, where they took 20,000 children out of Germany. That was a Quaker-led project. You see our work without necessarily knowing that it's us. That's what it sounds like. You're not out there tooting your horn. It's kind of like behind the scenes doing all the good work. So very interesting, really interesting. Letting our lives speak. Yes, letting your life speak, as did Jesus. Follow me. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Okay, Kate, thank you so much for being with me today. I've, I've learned a lot. I always learn something from my guests that I've learned a lot. And I hope that a lot of people also learn about the Quakers, the unprogrammed Quakers. Really quickly, what are you unprogrammed from? Well, I mean, unprogrammed means we don't have any program in our you worship. Program. Our worship is, <laughs> yeah, our worship is unprogrammed. There's no, there's there's no program in the there's worship. planned. Exactly. There's nothing planned. I get it. I meant to ask that in the beginning. I'm thinking that there was a program and you've been been deprogrammed. No, no, no. no, Okay. Oh, no, no, no. It does sound like that, doesn't it? No, no, not deprogrammed, unprogrammed. I'm glad I brought it up in case somebody else had a question. So anyway. Really? Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us. I'll have your book on the webpage and any other links that you have. It is A Simple Faith in a Complicated World. What is it? Quaker is? What is the first word? Quaker? Quaker Quicks is the series Quaker that it's a part Quaker of. Quaker Quicks. Yeah, yeah. Quaker Quicks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you, everyone, thank you. for listening. Yeah. It's really thank you. wonderful to be with you. Wonderful to be with you. Okay. And I now close the spiritual forum, but join me again next week with my next guest. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.